This week, we continue our series, The Gospel Makes the Church. Last week, last week, we looked at how the gospel makes the church unique, how each of us is uniquely unqualified to be part of God's mission, to be part of God's team, and yet he has called us to join him in this glorious purpose anyways. None of us is exempt. Each of us is called to join Jesus on his mission to bring about his kingdom, and that's pretty stinking awesome. This week, we are looking at how the gospel makes the church one which is something that we know is, is true. God wants a, a unified church. It would be great if we all agreed on everything and, and if we were all of one mind and we never hurt each other and we could just link arms and, and kumbaya ourselves together in, in the, to the glory of, of God's mission field. But we know that that isn't completely the case, don't we? And so we're going to take a look at the thoughts of Jesus on this particular topic. We find our text this morning in John chapter 17, and we'll be looking at verses 20 to 23. We're going to be kind of barging in, looking in on a prayer that Jesus is praying to his Father. He's, he's praying about the disciples. He knows the, the present and future fractions that are awaiting this group. He knows the tensions that Paul will bring, even though Paul hasn't been a character of note in the New Testament to this point. He knows of the difficulties that these men, his friends, his companions, his disciples will face. And so he's praying for them as he prays for us. Let us listen in on the heart of Jesus for his followers this morning as we read John 17, verses 20 to 23. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to follow along. There should be a Bible in the pew in front of you if, if you'd like that. Or the words will be on the screens beside me. We read the word of the Lord. This morning, John 17, 20 to 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That sense the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. So I was pondering these verses from John this week. I was reminded of one of the, the greatest fantasy epics of all time, The Lord of the Rings. doesn't take much to get me there. Like, I'm pretty into fantasy. Like, that's kind of my, my jam. So it doesn't take me too long to be like, hey, I think, I, yeah, it's a thing. But particularly the first installment of the series titled The Fellowship of the Ring. For those that may be unfamiliar with the story, there's this huge, big, bad dude that, that everyone thought was defeated, but a piece of him escaped death, and he's been hiding his time, biding his time, hiding and storing up his power. And now he's finally begun to show himself. And as he's begun to search for the one thing that he needs to complete his comeback story and conquer the world, a ring of power. Now, the ring happened to find its way to a peaceful, unsuspecting group of people called hobbits. They are short, chubby, and they don't want anything to do with the outside world. 
They are all about ignorance is bliss, let us eat our pies, smoke our pipes, drink our wine, and let the world worry about itself. Well, the ring changes that for a few of them as they make their way to the elves so that they may be rid of this ring. A meeting is called of all the noble races in the land of Middle-earth to figure out what to do with this thing. The elves, the dwarves, the humans, a wizard, and the hobbits are there. But the hobbits are there not because like anyone thinks they'll help all that much, but just because they're the ones that found and brought the ring. And, and so they have this meeting, and at the meeting is determined that this ring must be destroyed since it can't be hidden from the evil one. The ring is, or the thing is, the ring is, is so magical, so powerful, that it can only be destroyed by the fires in which it was crafted, the fires of the great volcano Mount Doom. Gotta love the names in these stories, right? It's like Mount Doom. This is where <laughs> everything falls apart, which is, of course, deep behind enemy lines. So, like, not, not a fun trip. This isn't something that we're excited about doing. So, who's gonna go on this mission? How's this gonna take place? The humans, they don't think it's possible, right? This whole plan is ridiculous. The elves insist that it must be done, for there's no other choice. But though these are the noble races of Middle-earth, racism runs deep, right? The, the elves have hurt and betrayed the dwarves before, and the dwarves refuse to see the ring in the hands of an elf. And, and so this whole meeting just begins to erupt into chaos. Everything is, is going to crap until one of the hobbits, Frodo, offers to bear the burden of the ring and the mission to destroy it, though he admits he'll need some help. And so it's decided that a party, a fellowship, if you will, will take on the mission of bringing the ring to the mountain to be destroyed, thus ending the power of the great, big, bad, evil dude forever. The most important mission of their age is entrusted to four little chubby dudes who don't like adventure, would rather sit in comfort and grow old and fat off good drink and nice smoke and about six meals a day. The old wizard commits to going He's not the greatest of wizards, rather, he ranks low in, in the wizard tiers of importance, but hey, dude's a wizard, so at least that's something, right? And then one of the humans, a ranger named Aragorn, offers his services, a man haunted by the past failings of his people. And knowing that those uh, same failings run through his own blood, a man who doesn't trust himself with power, scared he'll abuse it, scared he's not qualified because of what his past holds. And then the noble elf joins the party. Somebody has to make sure this group stays on task, doesn't get distracted, and that the ultimate goal is accomplished. At least that's how the elves see things. The other races aren't as trustworthy in their eyes, and so there needs to be someone who is responsible that is part of such an important mission. And the dwarves, well, they don't trust the elves. Too much history, too much pain, too much betrayal by a race that thinks they're superior. They have to keep an eye on the elf. Plus, they can't have the elves be seen as brave and themselves as cowards, so one of their members also joins the party. The final member of the fellowship is a human who has felt betrayed by everyone else. His people have been fighting the enemy for a long time, but everyone ignored them, letting them take the brunt of the battle while the rest of the world minded its own little merry business. He and his people have been the watcher on the wall. And he has seen hurt, has experienced loss, has watched his people die. He's not about to let the ring of power out of his sight, for maybe, just maybe, they could use it to save his people. 
A little compromise can go a long way. So he joins a fellowship that he believes is doomed, that he might gain control of enough power to save his people. The last thing that you'd say about this fellowship is that it is unified. Put the hobbits aside for a minute, and the members of this group are incredibly skilled and talented in their own ways. They are masters of their crafts, but they don't trust each other. They come from different backgrounds. They come from different cultures. Some of them have deep, embedded hurts, and some of them have horrible pasts. How can this group get it done? Will they be able to stick together long enough to complete this incredibly important mission? This task that the rest of the world is depending on, even though they may not even know it. Church, our mission is not to take a ring of power and throw it into a fiery volcano by the name of Mount Doom, though admittedly that would be pretty awesome. No, our mission is different. Our mission is given to us at the end of Matthew 28, where we read that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to us and that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. And to rest in the truth that Jesus is always with us to the very end of the age. This is our mission. No rings, no fiery mountains. But the gospel of Jesus Christ. But though our missions are different, we see some of ourselves in the fellowship, don't we? Some of us are hobbits. Content to be and let be. Desiring to focus on the things in life that, that bring us joy. Not very eager to venture out into the world where conflict and danger lurk. Let the world take care of itself, man. We got our own problems. Like when dinner is. Some of us are the wizard. A bit past our prime, but haven't reached the expectations that we set for ourselves. Some of us are the ranger, the man with the past that haunts him, the past that he feels disqualifies him from taking any major role in the mission. Some of us are the elf. He's proper, he follows the rules, he does what is expected, but he, he looks down on and is disappointed by those who have not lived up to their expectations as he has. Some of us are the dwarf, carrying deep hurt, maybe racial, maybe something else, but knowing you need to be involved if only to stop others from hurting someone else like they hurt you. Some of us are the final human, we've been fighting this battle for so long. We're weary, we're tired. We've been hurt over and over again, and we've gone to the point where a little compromise, twisting things for what would look like the benefit of others, well, maybe that's not such a bad thing if it ultimately accomplishes the mission. And as much as we may not like it, may not want to talk about it, as much as it makes us uncomfortable to acknowledge the truth is that as people, as a church, we feel these tensions, don't we? Last week we talked about the big C church, all who confess Christ as Lord and Savior, and then we talked about the small C church, our, our denominations, our local parishes, places like Calvary, the, the church up the hill, the church across town, our sister church in Paramus, and both the big C church, the invisible church, and the small C church, the visible church, struggle with these tensions. Because every church is made of people. 
And each of us bring our own baggage, our own failures, our own strengths, our own hurts, and our own perspectives to the fellowship of the gospel. How is this group going to get the mission done? How do we go forward with the gospel when we're not even sure how to go forward with each other sometimes? We all come from such wildly different places in life, some of them actively antagonistic towards each other. As churches in North America, we deal with denominational differences and evangelical tribalism. And that's on a, that's on a national scale. But even on the smaller scale, our churches have dealt with splits over the handling of COVID, political divides, how we address and approach injustice, racial, racial tensions, how we handle sexual abuse in churches, how we address deep hurts inflicted upon us by the church, or at least by people sitting in her pews or standing in her pulpits, and other serious, deep, important, and difficult issues. And some issues that divide us are, are much less important, things like what song should be sung and the color of the carpet? Some things that cause tensions between church members are serious and, and some are silly. But show me a church where there are no tensions and I'll show you a church where there's no one in the pews or a church that is lying to itself. Every church has tensions. Every church has conflict because every church has people. So how do we move forward? Where do we go from here? How does God use a church of broken people filled with, with tensions and, and some infighting in his mission? Aren't, aren't we supposed to be unified? Isn't that what our text this morning was saying? How, how do we get there and, and what does that look like? When Karen and I were first married, I was hired at Best Buy. When I first got the job, I was working in the back room in the inventory department. If if I had the afternoon or evening shift, I'd be the guy that pulled fridges and, and, and whatever large item onto the sales floor that had sold. And then I'd, I'd take it out of the back and I'd, I'd help people load it into their vehicle. Although I guess I'm not allowed to do that anymore. So I should have got the job now because like back then I was supposed to help get it in there. But now it's like, no, that's a liability. So they just get to sit there and watch you struggle to get those like TVs into your cars and trucks and stuff. Definitely should have been there uh, later, but it is, it is what it is, so I, you know, we, got, we got those fridges in, man. Bring your truck. We'll get it in there, but if, if I had the morning shift, then we'd get to the store like super early, at least for me at the time, it was super early, and our job was to unload the big trucks, right? And so you'd pull out all the merchandise from the truck, and then you put it where it belonged in the store. I was hired for the Christmas rush, but I was one of the few seasonal workers that the store decided to hold on to once the Christmas season had passed. Now, there's another guy in the store that also worked inventory, and he and I, man, we just clashed right away. It had come out pretty early that I was a Christian, and our belief systems infuriated uh, this particular coworker of mine. And I didn't really care for him much either. I saw him as a suck-up. It, it felt like he was always brown-nosing, and he got the time off that he wanted. And, and, and management just, just seemed to, to like him. He was, he was given liberties at work that the rest of us weren't. And so he just, it just seemed like he was catered to in all these different things that, that he wanted over the rest of us. If you ask for time off at the same time that, that Corey did, Corey got approved. And you could just go kick rocks. That kind of thing. Well, wouldn't you know it, Corey and I ended up working together quite a bit. It wasn't easy at first. Our, our hard edges, our frustrations with each other over... Uh, 
with, yeah, which either caused some evenings and some mornings to get pretty tense. But getting along wasn't why we were at Best Buy. We were at Best Buy to do the job that we had been hired to do. And as time went by, as we worked together, as we spent more and more time in each other's presence, not because we wanted to, but because our job called us to. And as we worked together, we started to realize that we made a pretty fantastic team. We were the best, most productive inventory team in the region during that time. Our focus on the job got us to work together, and working together got us to care about each other. I'll never forget the night that Corey broke down. I didn't realize the walls that he had put up around himself because of my faith. And then one day he was up on the lift and we were putting away dishwashers up on one of the top shelves in the warehouse. And he just sat on the lift and he started crying. And I'm not, I'm not talking about just streams down his face. I'm talking sobbing. Corey sat on that lift and he bawled. And he told me about how much it hurt to feel like people didn't care about him. How he felt dehumanized because of his sexual preferences and the stance that such a large part of the country that believers that I took against them. That was a hard night. We had a difficult conversation. It wasn't easy. And at times it was really awkward. But I'll tell you what. That night deeply affected my perception of Corey and his tribe. Not that the Bible isn't true, it is. We don't get to change or twist what the Bible says to meet our preferences, but that night pointed out my flaws and failings and the walls that I had put up, the sin that I was participating in and the ways that I viewed and even without really realizing it had treated Corey and those of his tribe. The things that I had thought about them, some of the things that I had said, the ways that I had subtly treated other people made in the image of God just because I didn't agree, agree with the way they lived their lives. And I needed to repent of that. I needed to ask Corey for forgiveness. Not forgiveness for my beliefs, but forgiveness for how I had sometimes unknowingly and admittedly, sometimes intentionally treated him because of them. I didn't know it because at 21, there was no way I was going to be a pastor. Like That was not what I was ever going to be doing with my life. But my future ministry was affected by that conversation that night. How I view people changed fundamentally. You might say that the gospel goggles came into better focus. And none of this takes place. None of this happens if Corey and I don't just start working together even though we don't really have anything in common or really even like each other. It was the job, the work. You might even say it was our mission that brought down our walls. Church, Calvary, friends, we will have differences with each other. We will not always agree on everything. There will be things that bring tension. There will be things that make us frustrated. And though it may feel like we need to get over those tensions and frustrations before we can move together in mission, I believe that our text this morning speaks against that. For according to our text this morning, it is the gospel that makes the church one. It is the message of the gospel that unites us. Verse 20 and 21 read this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all may come to be one. 
Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Through the proclamation of the message, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church becomes one. This is what unites us. This is what brings us together because it's not just a message for the world. It's a message for us. And sometimes we forget that. I love the way that Tully and Shavijan, I don't always like all the things that have gone on with that guy, but man, in an interview he did with Dan Darling about his book, Surprised by Grace, he said this, Most Christians assume that the gospel is something non-Christians must believe in in order to be saved. But after we believe it, we advance to deeper theological waters. The truth is, however, that once God rescues sinners, his plan isn't to steer them beyond the gospel, but to move them deeper into it. After all, the only antidote to sin is the gospel. And since Christians remain sinners even after they're converted, the gospel must be the medicine a Christian takes every day. For me, it was through probing the story of Jonah that I came face to face with the fact that the gospel is not just for non-Christians, but also for Christians, end quote. Each of us knows that we're sinners, Christian, non-Christian, we're all sinners. And so each of us needs the gospel. We all need to hear or be reminded of the truth that Jesus left heaven and lived among us. He left perfection and his Father's side to come to earth and to suffer alongside those that had hurt him so incredibly much with their sinfulness. But our sin did not stop him from loving us. It did not stop him from teaching us and caring for us. And even though in our sinfulness we betrayed him and called for his death, he still willingly walked up the hill to Calvary with the thick wooden beams of a cross upon his back. But it was not just the instrument of his death that he carried, for he was also weighed down by the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin, all sin throughout all time was taken upon Jesus as he was nailed to the cross. And there on that cursed tree, the Bible tells us that Jesus became sin for us. He took our sin and he became it. And there on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out over Christ because of our sin. There on the cross, Jesus died for the sin of the world, for yours and for mine. There on that cursed tree, he paid the price that we never would have been able to pay, that our sins might be atoned for. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, when we recognize his sacrifice as something we need, then we are saved. Through faith, the Bible tells us that the dirty rags of our sins are taken from us and we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So then when we believe, when we have faith, when God looks at us, he doesn't see the filthy sinners that we are, but instead he sees the righteousness of his perfect son. And as Erling read for us earlier, that when, when we are clothed with Christ, we are one, right? No longer Jew, no longer Greek, no longer Gentile, no longer man, no longer woman. One in Christ, the mission of the gospel. The gospel is what makes us one. Church, we talk about this every Sunday. And we talk about it every Sunday because we never need to stop hearing it. We don't reach a point where the gospel loses its meaning. We cannot achieve a position where we no longer need the work of the gospel in our lives. We don't move beyond the gospel. We only move deeper into it. For the longer we live, the more we realize our own sinfulness. And the more we recognize our need for Christ's death 
on the cross. And it is this message, the message of the cross that Jesus is talking to his father about in our text this morning. This is what brings the unity, our recognition that we are all sinners, all in need of his grace, that our neighbor is no different than we are, and that we are called to tell them of Christ. And so moving together, moving forward in the mission that God has called, to, called us to is what brings us closer together. It is this mission that brings us unity. It is this mission that makes us one. And so as we go on this mission together, may our love for Jesus, for God, and the message of the gospel overshadow the differences that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ, for we are on this mission together. The Fellowship of the Ring doesn't go the way we'd think it would go. About a third of the way into the story, the Fellowship breaks. The wizard dies, protecting the group from a great evil. Boromir, the last human, succumbs to the compromise raging in his heart and tries to steal the ring and, and almost loses himself before repenting and then loses his life, protecting Frodo, the ring bearer, from those who would do him harm. Two of the hobbits are kidnapped by the enemy. The ranger, the elf, and the dwarf all set out together to rescue their friends that are taken as Frodo and the ring have passed beyond their ability to protect. Now there's a danger of carrying an illustration too far, but I think this one is still holding up. Sometimes the direction that we are called to take in God's mission changes. Two of the fellowship were left to follow the original plan of taking the ring to Mordor. I find it pretty interesting that it's two of the hobbits, the ones that would rather stay home and ignore what's going on in the outside world than get involved in anything. These are the ones that go, to the, that go the deepest into enemy territory. But just because the others, those still living, aren't part of the original mission anymore, that doesn't mean they have no purpose. They don't go on to do great and fantastic, or they go on to do great and fantastic things that are just main mission adjacent but still on mission, still fighting against the evil that is raging through their world. And as they fight together, the hurts, the wounds, the doubts, the racial tension, though still present, aren't as powerful over them. Eventually, the dwarf and the elf, having gone through so much together, become the best of friends and forge a new alliance between elves and dwarves. Now, I know it takes more than an adventure to heal all the tensions and hurts that we have between each other. But the story isn't wrong that working together for a common goal, particularly working together in the mission of God and proclaiming a message of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation goes a long way towards healing those hurts. The message of the gospel makes the church one. It, put at the, it puts Christ at the center, which is exactly where he is intended to be. It's the only place that he can be. And as we rally around the call to mission, as we rally around the repentance that God has called us to and the forgiveness that he has lavished upon us, as we rally to tell this message of eternal hope to our brothers and sisters who have not yet come to faith, and as we rally to continually remind our brothers and sisters in the faith of this message, we rally together as one, as God intended it to be. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, loving, and just God we serve. Amen.